Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by my friend Flag Taylor. We are doing yet another movie that is tangentially at least connected to totalitarianism. This has long been our theme. We have done maybe half a dozen movies or more on Polish cinema especially, but not exclusively, and on the memory of World War II and tyranny in Europe in the 20th century. And that's because Flag is an expert on totalitarianism and totalitarianism in art and especially the movies. Today we are talking about Terence Malik's A Hidden Life that came out last year, competed in Cannes, a very well-received movie with critics. But it is only now available to broad audiences on HBO Max, at least. Perhaps it can be streamed otherwise as well. It is a true story, the story of a Christian martyr who refused to swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler, Franz Jägerstetter, an Austrian who was imprisoned, tried, convicted, and executed. And so you could say the whole movie is about the road to the guillotine, the terrible ending of this wonderful, incredibly beautiful, but also heartbreaking three-hour-long movie. Terence Malik is the most important Christian movie maker of our times and one of the most famous artists. A few people would be called masters, but he's a contender for the title. And this is the first time he makes a movie that is overtly Christian, all about faith, all about the power of faith and the sacrifices of faith. And that is also a true story. The movie is based on Franz Jägerstetter's life, but also on his words, on his letters, his exchanges preserved with his wife, Fanny. This is constantly present in the movie during their separation in his imprisonment. And Terence Malik also spoke with his two surviving daughters, whom you see as children. They never really got to see their father. In fact, this presentation is most of what we know about Franz Jägerstetter, this wonderful movie. Flag, I'm glad that you have seen the movie, that you loved it as much as I did, and that we have yet another wonderful picture to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's great to be back to talk about a difficult but profoundly beautiful and interesting movie. It's interesting for me, of course, my usual uh, expertise gets to show itself in films about communism. So it's interesting to shift towards Nazism and fascism. And I think we have a lot of interesting things to talk about in terms of the susceptibility of people, the attraction of fascism, what they might have seen in it, why they might have compromised themselves in order to order their lives around it. And then, of course, how Franz Jägerstadter somehow is able to exempt himself from that appeal. Obviously, the first thing that stands out from this movie is he's really the only resistor you meet, right? And so that in itself is kind of an interesting fact. I was also struck just by way of introduction by just the utter beauty of the movie. It's three hours long, but it doesn't feel like that. It's slow, but it somehow moves you along precisely because Malik is such a wonderful craftsman just in terms of imagery. If you didn't want to go to Austria before this movie, you're going to want to go visit after you see it. And the movie, I guess you could divide it into three parts, but, you know, the plot is pretty straightforward. No need for any sort of dramatic breakdown. I would say the first third of it, it takes place in St. Radigan, this small village in Austria, and you get to know Franz, his wife, Fanny, and his family, and the other major people in his life. About an hour into it, he is called up for military service. He refuses to take the oath to Hitler, and then he's put in a prison in Austria. That part of the movie probably is over in about a half an hour. And then finally, he's moved to the Berlin prison. That's probably about an hour and a half. He's in that prison. He's tortured. We do see him get to have a final audience with his wife, and then we see the events leading up to his execution. And so, as you said, the movie is a wonderful portrait of this man's faith, 
his discovery and use of his conscience and his personhood. We see that in stark contrast to the church authorities, right, in the movie who are corrupted, obviously compromise themselves. So we can talk about some of his conversations with the priest and a bishop. Yeah, you're right. This is an account that takes about four years. It starts in 1939. There are some flashbacks to when he met and married his wife. They both lived in this little village, Franz and Franziska. Sankt Radegund, named for a, a martyr of the barbarian ages 1,500 years ago. I think that's a suggestion that a new barbarism came, a new dark age in the 20th century. The way village life looks in the first part of the movie is just wonderful. In Malik movies, there tends to be such a sequence where you see something like natural life, the natural goodness of life, why it is that we all love being the beings that we are. For us, it's more tied up with the beautiful and with certain hopes that issue in faith. But there's also just something to be said for nature and for human pleasures and for the life closest to this simplicity, the life farthest away from all the complexities that we see in war and tyranny and what we call ideology. Then, as you say, we move to his imprisonment and his transformation. He has prepared himself in his conscience, and he proves courageous, steadfast, and humble and simple at the same time at this moment. But then we also see this terrible descent, the prison in Berlin, the beatings and humiliations, the tortures, the test of his faith, the temptation to abandon his faith. And then you see again a man who, in a way, isn't who he was anymore. He is not the Austrian young man anymore. He is not the guy who loved riding a motorbike. It was a manly, adventurous thing to have done in the 30s. And all of these other things, they pass is almost reduced to his faith and his love for his wife and daughters, for his family. The first part of the movie seems to reveal his character. You see what he chooses to do, what he avoids to do. This is who he is as a man. But by the end of it, in a way, he's being transformed. And much of the third act suggests to us again and again the temptations of Christ. That somehow every man of faith, if he should come to be tested in this way, that he has to become a martyr, would perhaps experience this all over again. So we go from something that is perfectly ordinary, but none of us have seen it, what it means to live as peasants in a village in the Alps of Austria, and we get to something that we've also never seen, but which is completely extraordinary, what it means to be a martyr of the faith. Malik is uniquely able to deal with this because, as you say, so much of the cinematography is beautiful. His use of natural light and of natural settings, his peculiar way of shooting actors and of getting them to act is just remarkable. You keep paying attention to things, and although you don't quite know what the next scene is, you see that each location in the movie speaks to a way of life and to a certain way of thinking. It's a three-hour movie, so you get a chance to see all of the places that you need to see. You're never rushed into anything, and you begin to believe that these are things that happen to real people. The life of the village, or when he's sent off for his military training, or in jail, or at the trial where he is convicted, or the various other things that deal with the church that are also present. It's remarkably persuasive because you feel so close to these characters. They seem so incapable of deception. Yeah. That's another very strange thing, that these terribly tyrannical men who kill him, they are not trying to deceive in the situation, they are not trying to hide anything. You see, because this martyr has a shocking moral clarity. Mm -hmm. Now, most of our lives are not that way, there's always uncertainty or ambiguity, but the strength of this moral conviction forces moral clarity everywhere. 
And of course, that also reveals so much ugliness that we can usually hide or hide away from, rather. So that's also what makes it such a rare movie and what makes it such a fitting subject for an artist like Terence Malik, who is always concerned with nature and with grace, with who we are and with what our most exalted hopes and beliefs are and how we live in light of that. Titus, can I ask you a question based on something you said initially? I think you spoke of Franz's transformation, which you know suggests a kind of character arc that changes over time and is pretty dramatic. That, I think, is interesting in itself. I'm not saying I disagree. I'm not sure that I, I disagree or agree at this point. But I guess I would say at the beginning of our conversation here, that did not strike me as the case when I watched the movie that we were witnessing some dramatic change. And I also wonder how much, I guess the other way to, to investigate this quandary is to think about the extent to which Franz himself is kind of surprised by his action towards the conclusion of that first part in the village when we get the sense that he's he has made a at least an initial decision to resist i think we see him talking to another villager saying something like do you believe in what we're doing and he almost seems to me looking around thinking to himself am i the only one that's seeing this like how can i be the only one that sees that what's going on is unjust and then in the i guess the other suggestion that i think explains his initial break is that he watches a propaganda video during his training, and I think he's just struck by the ugliness of it, and it just repels him and makes him think, well, there has to be a difference between a just and an unjust war, and so maybe my conscience tells me that I can't participate in it. But even after that, I'm not sure that he's convinced yet that he won't officially take the oath or he won't serve. His initial act of disobedience, I think, is not contributing to the war effort. When the Veterans Association comes and asks him to contribute towards that, that that's sort of his initial, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. So maybe we can just chew on that for a minute. How much of a transformation does, in fact, take place? Or is it the case that once he kind of realizes what the war is about for him, you know, everything else follows pretty easily? In that case, I guess in, in that understanding, there wouldn't be so much of a transformation as a, I don't know, teasing out the logic of his initial decision. Yeah, you bring up a very important point. This is really the center of the movie. Franz is struggling with his conscience and his decision, and it's not obvious when he makes it. I agree with you that in seeing the ugliness of the war... It's supposed to impress all these men who are in training in Austria. They're practicing stabbing bayonets at the straw figures and doing all these sorts of drill exercises. And then before they are in fact sent home, because France has been conquered, there's no invasion to be done right now. They're shown the glories of this war, the destruction of France. And so this notion that Germany is in danger, there's this terrible enemy to face, just completely collapses. There is no enemy. And instead, you see this desire to destroy and this joy in ruining people and the entire country. And he's shocked by its ugliness. So you see that he's already changed his mind before he gets home. But you don't know quite what the consequences of this will be. Because you don't know the character of what he has realized. Mm -hmm. Franz is a fairly silent man. He keeps his own counsel. And nevertheless, you see two sorts of things, that life in the village gets uglier as it's corrupted by war, and he begins to be angry at it. At one point, he starts seeing people zigheiling in the village. Yeah, that's a great that scene. That had never yeah. happened. That was not part of Austria. That had never been part of Germany before either. This madness seeps in. 
He feels harassed by all this. Yeah, what does he reply? The two men that walk by him say, Heil Hitler? He says, go to hell, Hitler, something like that. He says, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't catch the German word, but he says something, Hitler. And you knew it wasn't Heil, but I wasn't, yes. <laughs> I wasn't clear about what it was. Yeah. And then, of course, he's utterly repelled by the speech of the mayor of the village, who I think this must be 1939. So it's a year after the Anschluss, right? Obviously, this is not, you know, downtown Linz or Vienna or something, you know, where you you would have had different orders from Nazi parties and things coming to attract the attention of the population. But so it's striking that this, you know, mountain village now has been you see this guy basically just spouting ridiculous Nazi propaganda about immigrants and the master race. And, you know, and I think Franz is looking around just stunned that no one else seems bothered by this. Whatever indeed the problems might have been in a city or in some other place, these are not the problems these people actually face, but somehow the propaganda spreads because it speaks to a deep hatred. Passions of the heart that the village simply cannot accommodate. Life in the village is what you see in the beginning. There's a lot of hard work. There are a lot of joys, some of them especially tied with community. Celebrations, aside from the holidays, meals together or drinking together at the local beer hall. That's what life is like there. It is not sophisticated. And in a way, it simply doesn't answer to certain deep passions of the heart, really the passions that politics is built on. What's so interesting about the first part is that it's apolitical. You could say that since Terence Malik is a student of philosophy with an incredibly sophisticated education, this is rather like the discussion in The Republic. You start with something that Glaucon would uh, contemptuously call a city of pigs mm -hmm. because it has none of the sophistication people might require or luxury. But it's a naturally just city. People treat each other well, help each other out. Everybody gets what he needs. Nobody is really bossing anybody around. You don't have much of hierarchy or authority. It's a life without political disputes. And then this comes in. The opening narration by Franz that says, we thought we could live above the clouds, fly away like birds into the mountains. They are in an above the clouds little mountain village after all. But then the war comes. You think that maybe that's the corruption, that somehow politics enters into this apolitical world and all of a sudden demands like hating together mm. come up that simply hadn't been uh, possible before. But there's more to that, it turns out. Yeah. Well, if I would say, too, what you're talking about um, reminded me, you know, the beginning of the Republic and some of the initial definitions of justice, right? I mean, we start with the love of one's own. And so, you know, Malik seems to be exploring the extent to which the ancestral, if it's not self-conscious about why the ancestral is good and worthy of devotion, love of one's own can be susceptible to all sorts of ugliness, right, in terms of keeping out enemies and threats. And it struck me that you see the mayor spouting the propaganda. It would have been interesting, right, to see, I don't know if there's like an elder town council or something, right, at any point in this period of the life of this village, was there a discussion among the village elders, right, about what Nazism represented, right? That's completely absent. There's no portrait of deliberation, right, a self-conscious kind of investment investigation of what this ideology might mean. And so it just seems like once the mayor gets on board and starts to portray the ideology as a way to protect what we love, it's very hard for people to resist it because then you seem to be suggesting that your village is not worthy of protection, right? And you're part of the problem. Yeah, and this comes up in the movie when the women of the village at some point harass Francis's wife and say, well, our husbands are off to fight. Why should they die saving you when your husband won't fight? 
this is the core of justice, as we see in the Republic. As you say in the first book, you have to help your friends and harm your enemies. It is not possible to put an end to conflict or war and we're all going to be angels. We're not that kind of being. And so there's always going to be conflict and we're going to have to take care of ourselves first. Somehow in human nature, as you say, you can already see in simply the fact that we are all attached to what we know, to what we love, to what we owe for our very being and what we hope to preserve by our efforts. This attachment itself makes us potential enemies. Some stranger might one day become our enemy. And indeed, although they are living an apolitical life, they are not simply above politics. Franz's father, we learn, had died in the Great War, fighting for his country, which was, of course, Austria, or indeed Austria-Hungary, as it was at that point, the empire. He died in the trenches of the war as a patriot. These are all patriotic people. But things have changed. Austria, as you say, before the movie starts, has been taken over by the Nazis and without that much opposition. Then Nazism begins to creep in. There's the mayor you mentioned. At some point you start seeing Nazi uniforms here and there. Mm -hmm. And in this place that seems to be so removed from the world, they look shocking. And you see Nazis collecting money for the war effort and trying to bully France into contributing money to a cause he does not want to contribute money to. And the intimidation, he resists it. But it seems like it's not just that as a man he doesn't want to be intimidated. It's that he also understands that there is an evil here, that these people are all lying. The war isn't for the sake of defending the fatherland. And yet, as you say, nobody says no to these things. The old habits of patriotism, the old habits of deference to the nation, of deference to authorities above, which are not elected authorities, right? These people were not born Democrats or trained in political deliberation, as you might suggest was simply imposed and people continued in their habits as though there had been no change when this warlike tyranny was installed. Mm -hmm. But you can see the change because their passions change. They become hateful, violent, resentful. They take out on France and Fanny their dark passions because they finally found somebody who is a likely victim. Yeah, that's so striking. I mean, as I guess we should focus on that for a minute, right? That as beautiful and affecting as the portrait of village life is at the beginning, he shows you how quickly things in that village turned so, so ugly. And so, you know, an hour in this idyllic place, now village children are throwing rocks at Franz and Fanny's daughters, right? And she's, Fanny has been completely excluded and not ostracized, but she is kept apart and utterly dismissed. And, you know, her fellow villagers hold her in contempt. And so I guess the very strength and beauty of village life, right, turns so, so quickly. And I guess what makes the village beautiful, these strong bonds, is what enables it to turn ugly once those bonds are put in the service of of an ugly ideology. Yeah, exactly. These people are not prepared for dealing with ideology and propaganda, modern means of coercion and persuasion, any more than much more sophisticated people were able to deal with them. And they're also simply not prepared to deal with the problem of tyranny. What happens if your rulers are wicked? Mm -hmm. Normal life simply isn't ready to deal with this. But of course, the little village is not just normal life. It's damn near idyllic. In a way, ordinary life really isn't. Mm -hmm. And yet it is very easily corrupted. Innocence is very easily lost as part of Malik's teaching here. These ordinary people are made incredibly ugly by something that was always possible, but it had never been visible before. 
Now, of course, war always does have this effect when once we have decided which strangers we have to kill in order to return to our way of life, we might find it quite hard to return to a peaceful, pleasant way of life. Those passions might not go away easily, and the habits they form are not easily dealt with either. But then you see this shift from political authority, what way of life these people have, what they believe about authority and justice and the fatherland, to spiritual authority. Franz returns from his time as a recruit being trained, drilled, to peaceful life, and he is only called up to arms in 1943. So for three years, he goes back to a life that steadily worsens as Nazism corrupts Austria. But it's also a lot of time for him to go asking priests and bishops, church authorities, what should he do? since he gradually over these three years strengthens in this conviction that Hitler is an evil ruler, and an evil ruler isn't a real ruler. You cannot submit to something which is essentially unjust. And there we see the weakness of this other side of authority, spiritual authority. Yeah, the initial conversation he has with the village priest, the priest tells him to consider the consequences for his family, that his sacrifice would benefit no one. He's not satisfied with that answer. He goes to the bishop. He tells the bishop that he wants to save his life, but he won't or can't save it through lies. And the bishop says, well, you have a duty to your fatherland. The church teaches you that. Franz's reaction to his meeting with the bishop is to suspect that the bishop thought that he was an informant, that the bishop was afraid that he couldn't speak completely freely. At the end of their conversation, the bishop says something like, they're melting the bells for bullets. And the tone of his voice suggests that this is a sort of, you know, gasp of a desperate cry. Like, I can't, I can't believe that they're doing this. So I think he does have good reason to suspect that the bishop might have not been speaking honestly. And so it's clear that the official authorities of the church are not adhering to the truth of their faith. Now you can say, well, that's because they saw what happened to their fellow priests and bishops, who many of them had been sent to concentration camps. So the argument can be made that they're doing their best to protect what's left of the institutions of the church as it exists. Nonetheless, there is the suggestion, I think, by Malik that eventually the church comes to orient itself according to the kingdom of man and not according to the kingdom of God. The priest is a perfect example of this. All of his thinking is imprisoned in this earthly consequentialism, right? You know, that's not the standard that Franz is asking about. Franz wants him to investigate what the example of Christ might mean for him. And what's interesting, I think this is one of the more beautiful and arresting deep scenes in the movie is when Franz in this first part, I don't know if he goes to see him specifically, but he ends up having a conversation with an older craftsman who's fixing the paintings in the church, the frescoes on the walls of the church. And the man says, is sort of thinking about paintings that he's put on church walls. And he says something like, you know, I'm able as an artist to get people to have sympathy for Christ. But that's really not what Christ wants. He doesn't want sympathy. He wants imitation. And so he says, someday I'll paint the true Christ. But the suggestion is that if he paints the true Christ, people might not follow it because they'll be so shocked by the real lesson of Christ's sacrifice and the difficulty and horror of Christ's sacrifice. I'll be more successful if I stick to painting these rosier, more sympathetic images. And I actually think that conversation has a profound effect on Franz. That's when I think he really starts to understand what his sacrifice is going to cost. But in a way, it gives him the strength. In an odd way, I think it shows him, well, this is one that's worth making then, you know. It reminded me when I spoke with Camilla Bendova 
the wife of this Czech dissident, Václav Benda, you know, about his example and her example in fighting communism. One thing that came out of their Catholicism and their witness, right, is that they had decided that what Václav Benda called in one of his essays, he called it bun Catholicism. The kind of Catholicism where an old lady in the 50s who was living in Prague might send buns to priests who were imprisoned in the gulag. And they thought, well, if I send these buns to these imprisoned priests once a year, I'm living my faith, right? Of course, Benda and some of his fellow dissident Catholics wanted to make the case that that's not enough. You have to live out your faith and be willing to actually enter into concrete sacrifice to face earthly evil when it comes. And I think that's something like what this artist is trying to get across to Franz in the movie, that, you know, being a Christian, being a Catholic might demand of you more at this moment than most people would be willing to give. And in a strange way, I think that's what strengthens Franz and makes him be more, even more resolute than he was up to then in terms of being confident that he's going down the right path. I agree this is the oddest moment in the sequence of talking to priests. He talks to a priest, the priest says, be afraid, but I'll take your case to the bishop. And then he gets to the bishop and he says, the bishop is afraid. Then he goes back to the priest who says, you have to understand, think of the concentration camps, what they're doing to priests. We don't really have a say in things. Maybe if we go along, the regime will tolerate us. The authorities are crippled. They're really no, not much better than the village authorities. They're less involved in the wickedness perpetrated in the war, but they're also more irresponsible. They're not even taking care of their own flock. So he is, in a way, left alone. That by itself is a foretaste of his martyrdom. He will not have a community of faith along with him. And then, aside from priests, he meets this strange church painter, as you say, and he gets a much more important lesson. Compare that conversation with what he overhears of the bishop's sermon. The bishop Mm. says, remember the lesson of the blacksmith. The hammer is terrifying, but the anvil in the end proves stronger. We have to suffer, and we will be eventually delivered. Is the upshot of that supposed to be that the, I mean, that could be interpreted in two ways, right? I mean, you can interpret that to be a sermon that's meant to be ambiguous and deliberately so, you know, so it could be interpreted as the anvil is the German nation that's going to endure the suffering of World War II, so friendly to the Nazis, right? Or in a way that suggests that the suffering of people who do not get on board with this project is worth it. And so I don't know if Malik meant it to be ambiguous or interpreted in one way or another. Certainly, since it's spoken metaphorically, it's meant to not say a political thing directly. Mm. You're right about that. He's not simply naming names here. He's not saying who the hammer is, where the evil comes from. It could just be the evil of the times. It doesn't have to be interpreted as Hitler. So the priest has what we nowadays in politics call plausible deniability. (laughs) Right, right. He doesn't have to take responsibility. (laughs) But it is a council of passivity either way. And it's not obvious what exactly grounds any hope for improvement when people will not take care of their affairs. That would seem to be the faith that it's most irresponsible. And then you see this painter who, because he's not in a position of authority, he can speak honestly. He blames himself. He says he creates admirers, yeah. but not followers. Right, that right. He paints a comfortable Christ surrounded in his halo, not the true Christ, the Christ of the cross. And he blames himself for that, and he knows that he's doing wrong. You see there that it's not just the bishop who is a failure. That The problem of faithful Christians is for all of us. Franz doesn't seem to judge harshly any of these people, even as he realizes that in a way he's being abandoned. In this case, however, he hears a man's conscience. 
he hears a man who judges himself and who admits the truth is the truth. Oh, that's very good. That does yeah. seem to be of great importance yeah, for yeah. him. He's not this kind of sophisticated guy, either, you know, theologically or with the spiritual side or the mission or the beauty of art or any of these things. He's not responsible for anybody else's life but his family's. But he discovers gradually that he's really and truly a believer in Christ, and that's the core of who he is. As he gets to that, he sees the world around him turning uglier and uglier. And, and so you see partly something here that judging things from the point of view of the martyr reveals how weak and lacking we really are. That's not something that people will take easily. Mm-hmm. So this movie can't be a blockbuster. It's why people today aren't wise and good and uh, very decent to each other. But from this unique perspective, you begin to ask yourself, is faith making us better or worse? There is so much ambiguity since Francis' love for his wife and his children is not to be doubted. Mm -hmm. And yet, because of his conscience, all this misery and suffering comes to all of them. That's how come they lose everything. Mm -hmm. They have to have persecutors as well to lose everything. But the persecutors also have to have an opportunity for persecution. You could say that his faith makes France a lightning rod. It didn't create the storm, but it did create the lightning rod. Mm -hmm. Whatever we may say good of sacrifice, we must also admit that all the people who are cowards, they are cautious cowards primarily. And there's something noble in that because they're not harming anybody. Mm-hmm. They're just trying not to suffer evil things. Yeah. And he's bringing evil with him. Yeah. I think this is kind of an interesting theme in the movie. What do you think about the marriage of Fanny and Franz and her influence on him and sort of her contributions that she might make to his faithful decision not to take the oath? I think initially she's not happy about it. And she, even as he's inarticulate, I would say, in his resistance, she understands perfectly well the path that he's heading down on. I mean, I think she's perfectly aware, even though they don't have any lengthy, deep conversations, right, about the sacrifice he might make. I think she's perfectly aware of who he is and what he might do. You know, there are a few things that she says to him that suggests, at least initially, she's not terribly happy about it. She says, you can't change the world. The world is stronger. I need you. That's a direct quote. But other than that, she doesn't resist. And eventually, of course, I think she turns out to endorse his decision when everyone else around him begs him not to do it in that scene where she comes to visit him in the prison in Berlin. So she turns out to be really the only ally he has. So I'd just be curious about your thoughts on their marriage and maybe what changes her view, what causes her to become more sympathetic to his need to make the sacrifice. It seems like without the wife, we would know nothing about this guy. She's the only person he really talks to, and then she knows him. You know, it's her rather than him who reminisces about their past. Yeah. It's not that he has forgotten, it's that she's willing to talk or even needs to talk about how they met, how they married, and so on. Yeah. Of course, it's their letters to each other that reveal who they are. And Franz's mother lives with them. I don't think we've mentioned that. And she seems angry that he's heading down this path. And Fanny's sister lives with them, and she's horrified by Franz's decision. So it is really Fanny who's the only one who comes to support him. Yeah, his mother would want him not to die. She tells him, you know what it's like to grow up without a father, Mm -hmm. implying, why would you do that to your own daughter? She says, I know what it means to live alone, implying, why would you do that to your wife? Then to an extent, she blames the wife, she says. For a while, I blamed you because he changed. And so there's a sense there of the power that this woman has had over her husband. 
that somehow she made him nobler and more confident in his way that I think, as you say, is also borne out by their conversation during his imprisonment and their final meeting, that she doesn't quite understand him. She doesn't think of the faith in the way he does, and she's more aware of the suffering. We see indeed how much she suffers because of his faith, how miserable life in the village becomes for her, how hard nobody's willing to help or work with them anymore. She's mistreated, she's alone with three daughters. You see indeed that her sister says, you should stop him somehow. Why is he doing this to you? Why doesn't he think of you? But Fanny can't bring herself to condemn her husband despite the suffering. And in a way, maybe it's because of the suffering that proves that they are truly good. They're not to blame. There's another sign of how important Fanny is because in, in one scene that doesn't really fit with the story, she goes to a town to meet her father and he tells her this Socratic teaching, it is better to suffer injustice than to commit injustice. So you think, you know, his father loves his daughter, she's in this terrible situation, but he doesn't try to get her out of it or to get her to stop believing in her husband. The opposite, he tells her that she's right. They share this opinion and she is true to her husband, even though she doesn't understand why is he doing this exactly. Mm -hmm. She and others suggest, you know, couldn't you just do medical service instead of combat service? Mm -hmm. But the Nazis are not like America. You can't be a conscientious objector. You have to swear an oath of loyalty to a very evil man and he finds he can't do that. Mm -hmm. France has certain virtues, but prudence is not among them. The notion that sometimes you shouldn't be telling the truth doesn't occur to him. The wife suggests to him cowardice to save his life. She says, run into the mountains, hide in the forests, get away somehow. But he can't bring himself to do that. So you see that in a certain way he is attracted to the confrontation. Right. He's not running away from evil. And again, you see a part of martyrdom that is not obvious the way at least we usually talk about it. He could have gotten away. Yeah, that was my reaction. My bourgeois morality told me just to get my wife and kids and try to get to, uh, I don't know, northern Italy or, you know, somewhere else and see if I can get on a boat somewhere. But uh, yeah, it seems to never occur to him to try. Well, I think that has to do with the fact that he sees all his way of life corrupted. All he ever knew, what his father died for, all the life he lived. So yeah, he doesn't think about becoming an immigrant or an expat or something like that. And maybe that too falls from the fact that up until he chooses martyrdom, so to speak, he's still a patriot. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think of leaving his country. Right. It's of course a very strange notion these days, but it was the way everybody lived up until then. This is a true story. He actually did all these things. That's who he really was. His kind of resolute nature comes out in his meetings with who I think is, must be his defense attorney, guy in the suit. The defense attorney raises the possibility of his serving in a medical unit or doing something else that would keep him out of danger. He wouldn't have to actually do any evil to anyone. And then he says, and then you'd be free. And Franz replies, well, I am free. And there's this look on the defense attorney's face. You know, you're in prison. You're not free. It's, he's, he just doesn't understand, of course. And he means that he's free in the sense that he's not mastered by these lower desires for life or anything, that he's free because he's allowed his conscience to speak to him and, and made his own decision based on his conscience, free from coercion. So he can't imagine being free in any deeper sense than that. But he still, I guess the one thing I would add to his resoluteness, I think Malik tries to communicate to the viewer, though, that even after that point, Franz has not it's not obvious that he's still going to go through with this sacrifice because we see him being beaten up by a guard. I think this is one of the really strikingly effective scenes in the film 
they have Franz being beaten by a guard in a hallway and the camera is put in such a position that you feel like you're being punched. I think it's the only time in the movie that Malik uses this technique. You really see things from Franz's perspective and he's getting hit in the stomach and then eventually in the face and then the camera blanks out. He's hazed by another prisoner in Berlin. The prisoner tells him, your man, your man, Jesus died in vain. And Franz asks for strength. He says something like, you know, Father, give me strength to endure this. And so I think the implication is that as strong and and resolute as Franz is, no one can sort of automatically be above the tortures that he's going through. So it's, you know, even after it seems like he says he's free, he's going to make the sacrifice. I think the suggestion by Malik is no one's above these trials. Yeah, that's a good point. You see his suffering and you hear his prayers and this strange experience. He says that when once you get over the desire to survive at all costs, everything changes all of a sudden. You will no longer be bound. And he explains that uh, before you were always in a rush, always short of time. Now you have all the time you need. Before, you never forgave anyone. You judge people without mercy. But now you see your own weakness, so you can understand the weakness of others. He says new light floods in. But at the same time, you see him crying in his cell and nearing despair. Most of the movie is juxtaposed between the prison in Berlin and Fanny back in Austria. And when he is crying in his cell, she finds the well dry. There are a lot of these metaphoric suggestions of their shared suffering. Indeed, he faces a tempter who makes fun of his faith in a deeply troubling way. And she goes with her girls to Corpus Christi Sunday, but the other children mistreat them and she goes away hurt. Mm-hmm. He has one friend he saw in basic training that he also sees in jail, who is a naturally joyous man, obviously silly guy, but also harmless and in a way good. And she sometimes meets people in the village who help her, who are generous to her in a secret way. So right. there are these glimpses of a natural goodness that hasn't been fully corrupted yeah. by the wickedness of the times, by this awful tyranny. You mentioned the Corpus Christi Sunday scene, which I think is important because in a letter, doesn't he suggest that, oh, you must be enjoying Corpus Christi Sunday? So he can't imagine their suffering. He doesn't understand how ugly village life has turned for her. Yeah, that's right. You see how loving they are in their letters and how each tries to spare the other, the ugliest things he's going through. Mm -hmm. She doesn't tell him about these humiliations. She tells him about the hardships that they can't find workers. And he doesn't tell her about beatings and whatnot. So there's an attempt there to preserve what is good in life for the other one. Yeah. spare each other. Mm-hmm. Now, in Terrence Malick's most famous movie has got to be The Tree of Life. It was the most successful one. It's almost 10 years now. And there you could see that, again, there's a father and a mother, and in a way, they're everything for their children. And there's a drama in this American family in the mid-century. But the father would seem to stand for nature in that movie. He's the tough guy who tells his kids, you have to work hard, you have to take what's yours. It is a hard world. And then the mother is the beautiful and graceful woman who also stands for grace, for a higher principle than strength. Here it's strangely different. It's the woman who has to deal with the actual hardship of life. You see her falter as she's driving the plow. Mm. You see her breaking her back trying to get sacks of flour on the back of a donkey that's more reluctant than she is. You see her misery in all these ways, going in the winter trying to find firewood. 
she has to deal with nature. He is, in turn, the character that is defined by grace. You see this in the misery of the prison, the attempt to make light of the suffering, to try to find some superior principle to comfort or safety or the dignity of being treated with justice. All of these things are taken away from him. He's generous to other prisoners. He gives people food. He tries to restore something of goodness in this awful situation. And then you see these hints of sanctity Mm -hmm. rising above the human condition. Yeah, he speaks to some of the fellow prisoners outside in the prison. And I think Malik must do this on purpose. He shows the prison courtyard. And in almost every shot of that courtyard, you see on the wall, Sprechen verboten, right? (laughs) You You can't speak. And this, right, stands in contrast to what people keep telling him that, you know, believe in your heart whatever you want, but take the oath, right? Speech doesn't matter. And he knows that speech matters, and the Nazis know that speech matters, which is why, which is why they, they require the oath. And so he's completely aware of the importance of words and won't compromise himself through words and, and try to keep, you know, keep his heart perfect, despite whatever he would say. The portions of the diary, or what we are supposed to be from his diary that you mentioned, those are almost an exact paraphrase of Solzhenitsyn's words in The Ascent, this pivotal chapter in part two of Gulag Archipelago, when Solzhenitsyn gives survival up at any price. Um, so it'd be interesting. I don't I don't know. It seems completely plausible that Franz Jägerstadter would have come to the same conclusion and wrote words to that effect in his own diary, or Malik could be appropriating Solzhenitsyn's words. It'd be interesting to figure out where Malik got those. Yeah, I think you're right there. Their letters are actual documents where the dialogue is taken from, but there are these other passages and scenes that aren't part of their letters to each other. And I think you're right, Malik must have taken this from Solzhenitsyn. Obviously, many other people must have had this experience, but the wording is indeed famous now. The one scene that we haven't mentioned yet that I wanted to be sure we talked about was the military tribunal scene where he is brought before this court with, I think, three or four magistrates that are going to pronounce on his sentence where he's ultimately given the death sentence. He chooses not to speak. We see one of the magistrates give a kind of blistering, nasty denunciation of him, but it's in German, it's not translated. And he doesn't say anything. But then one of the magistrates takes him in the back room, and they have a private conversation. And he says some things to Franz that we've heard before, right? Um, No one's going to hear what you're doing, your actions will be of no consequence. But then he says something interesting that I think we haven't heard before. The guy says something like, do you judge me? Are you judging me for my participation in this? And Franz says, well, no, I don't pretend to He says something like, I don't pretend to know everything. And so it's clear that I think this magistrate is shaken by his encounter with Franz precisely because he can't put together what is, at a common sense level, actually extremely hard to put together, right? That someone would, on the one hand, have the strength of character and courage to undertake an act of resistance and defiance, right? You have to have a certain sense of your own dignity and importance, something like pride, but not pride, but also, right, have an extraordinary sense of your own humility, right? And I've heard people talk about the Czech dissidents as putting together these two things in a kind of impossible way. I mean, you can speak of someone like Benda or someone like Havel in this way, that they seem to put together this incredible magnanimity, strength, self-confidence with this amazing humility. And it's, it's just... You wouldn't think that someone could combine these two traits in a single character. 
and that's what I think strikes this magistrate. He just it doesn't compute for him. He thinks this guy must be full of pride and he's standing there in judgment of him. But I think Franz is sincere. He's not. He's not. So interesting scene. Yeah, I, I think you're right. This again strikes us as a parallel to the Holy Week treatment in the Gospels, to the suffering of Christ, to the judgment he was faced with. And you see indeed this recognition that France must stand for some superior judgment, for some supreme good that defines what it means to be human, that involves that you can't just do everything for this one moment and like with the painter you see this in this aside a man who has been struck by the character of the holy it emerges for us primarily as you you can't just do everything the scenes where we see france as a adventurer motorist on a motorcycle in the mountains that's the identity of france and his father that's what we call recklessness <laughs> but it is tied up in a certain way with willing to give your life for god Neither one is accessible to cautious people, for example. His father was a manly man, as peasants had to be, and he was a patriot, and that's also manly, and he died for it. His son is like him. He's also willing to die for something. He doesn't have a fatherland anymore. He sees it being destroyed after having been taken over, but he dies for God instead. And that implies, in both cases, manliness has to defend what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human being, really, that it is a good and worthy thing. But it does it in a paradoxical way that you might have to prove that it's good being a man by dying for it. But dying is not good. Yeah. That is resolved in a way in saying that manliness stands or falls by the statement that there are fates worse than death. That there is something that a man should not put up with. Yeah. You see here with Franz that this magistrate has figured that out. He has realized that here is a man who has set holy limits around humanity and will not trespass. He could do it. He could save his life. It would be easier for his family, but he doesn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. He gives himself up to God in that way. In a way, it's a parallel to the scene with the painter. And the scene of judgment and the scene of the church are parallel because there are two or three times when you see this gorgeous... When he goes to see the bishop, he gets to this cathedral, this impressive Baroque beauty and this splendor in which the bishop lives, which contrasts with his cowardice. Then when you get to judgment, it's a bit more than two hours in the movie, in Berlin, there's the palace of the military tribunal, a very beautiful neoclassical edifice mm -hmm. that's supposed to remind us, of course, of Greece and Rome, of justice and uh, what we think think of ourselves as civilized people, that we are free men. And instead, you, you see this horrible prosecutor who is hysterical and has no dignity, is all the cruelty of Nazism. And then this quiet magistrate to the side, who there is hint at the truth of what's going on, but no more. Here as well, justice as much as the requirements of faith and piety have been betrayed. That's right. You reminded me, too, just the contrast that Malik hits upon over and over again, right, is the contrast between justice understood as the good or the useful in terms of consequences, right? You have to do right by your family, which means saving your own life. You have to make sure your wife has a good life and, you know, she's not going to have to raise the children by herself. Your father died. You know, don't leave your family in the same mess that your father did, right? Something that his mother tells him. So it's always justice in terms of the good or the useful. And he refuses to see justice in those terms, right? For him, it's this justice 
has to be understood at its highest pitch in terms of the noble. It reminded me again of the Republic and the beginning of book two. And Glaucon demands that justice be understood as good precisely when it at at its it's at its most noble, right? And Socrates can't he has no argument to offer him at that point in the dialogue anyway, because he's I think Socrates knows that's the wrong way to think about justice. And so there is just this chasm between the demands of the people who are around Franz, who want him to understand justice in a certain way with respect to good and useful. And he just, you know, says, well, that's the wrong way to think about it. Once you start down the road of consequences, you can massage and manipulate justice to mean anything you want. But I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go down that road with you. Yeah, there's a great connection between the intransigence of France and the intransigent demand of Glaucon, who gives a very similar story of martyrdom. What if the man who is all of justice but doesn't seem so to other people is tortured, made miserable, humiliated, what we nowadays call a martyr? He is worried about this possibility. Maybe justice isn't good for you. It would be heartbreaking. And you see here, again, the philosophic education of Malik, It's worth pointing out that from the ordinary point of view, he really is doing something crazy. But this is a real story of a real martyr in a real war. Lots of people compromised themselves in World War II. Even many who didn't have to, weren't faced with death. How are you going to go through war, through this kind of tyranny, through the horrors of this world as a community, when nobody holds up the standard of the good and the just and the noble? Mm -hmm. That's what this guy did. Yeah, just based precisely on what you just said, it made me want to see a portrait of that village, you know, in 1947, (laughs) right? What does that village look like? How is it healing? How is it recovering? All these people who behave so horribly to one another, and especially to Fani, how are they doing? And I suspect that if you compare them to the Jägerstatters, the Jägerstatters are doing much better. There's the suggestion, too, I think that something that pushes me even more strongly in that direction is the fact that the mother asks Fani for forgiveness near the end of the movie. But that suggests to me that Malik is trying to suggest that the Jägerstatters are going to do okay. They're going to be fine. Yeah, and it turned out to be true. As I said, uh, Terence Malik spoke with two of the three daughters of Franz and Fani Jägerstatter, and he eventually got to show them the movie once it was made to screen for them. And Malik is famous not just for having disappeared 20 years from Hollywood, but for being very reclusive and not showing up to do any kind of publicity. The most reclusive of the directors has no interest in celebrity worship and the press and all that. But he did take this movie to show it at the Vatican Library in a rare event, precisely to remember the best of the faith in this terrible time that was World War II. You can say, therefore, even from a prudential point of view, that the terrifying madness of martyrdom, the death and suffering and all these beatings and all of the wicked things you see in the movie, that even if you don't think about heaven or or Christ, you still see that it saves a community's understanding of justice. Mm. Even if people feel they can't live up to it, there's at least something of them. He was one of them, after all, that was not corrupted Mm. by the most corrupt time. That's something for a community to look back on as people try to repent of their mistakes and to have a second chance to have perhaps some kind of forgiveness, even though they failed the requirements of justice at the time. 
This is more of an old world problem than a new world problem. One doesn't speak in the new world of martyrs and what have you. You can think of California and other places in the old Spanish South full of Christian names. Corpus Christi is the name of a town in America. Mm -hmm. But nobody ever thinks about San Francisco or San Diego or Los Angeles or anything like that. That's not a religion. That's just a name. But it was once tied up in some way with faith and with saints. And in the old world, that meant much more. Indeed, as we said, the little village in the mountains is called Sancta Radegund for this lady who was martyred low 1500 years back. Maybe a country needs its saints too. That is to say, Christianity somehow depends on these rare, unpredictable, something you can't command people to do. You can't expect most people will behave in this way when it comes to holding on to faith. But it's required for the people to remember who they are. Even if they fail it, they nevertheless remember it. We don't all pretend to be saints. But precisely because it's so rare, and it is not a standard that most people can meet, that it is so important. That somehow speaks to a certain aspiration for dignity that is independent of the political requirements of freedom or greatness. It resembles them in this way, as we said, that it does require the willingness to die and therefore the belief that there are worse things than death, that a certain kind of misery or slavery is a worse thing than death. What if people forget about that? Mm. Then they would become complicit in a certain way. That is to say, they would not just be suffering injustice, they would also, in a certain way, be humiliating themselves, abandoning their own beliefs. They would be consenting to defeat and humiliation. And France certainly does not do that. Yeah, and I guess the other detail that gives me confidence in the future for Fanny and the children, the mother's forgiveness, but also you mentioned that interesting scene with her father. So her father is, is still around and I think understood perfectly well the sacrifice that Franz was making. So they're by no means, even though they were in a way alone in the village when uh, 1945 comes along, I think they won't be alone any longer, right? Things will look much different. Yeah, indeed. They do get to have a decent life eventually. Well, Flag, I think we have arrived at the conclusion of the movie and of our conversation today. This is a wonderful picture. It's rare to find this kind of examination of Christianity, of faith, of the trials, of the terror and the hope. A part of being human that we don't reckon with much and that is simply very, very difficult to reckon with. But it's a very important part of not just World War II, but of our communities and our souls. I can't think of somebody who has achieved at any recent point or, you know, generally in movies what Malik has achieved here. It's a movie that stands to be remembered for generations and perhaps gradually people will see the touch of greatness there, what it says about our nature that is profound and that transforms how we usually think about history as much as about art. It forces you to see a way of life and certain people, to look at the soul of this man and this was a real story. Malik is no doubt a master of cinema, but this is the first time he does a true story. And you see a power of art that had not been obvious before, because it's not trickery, it's not merely cinematic achievements, it's not simply an art. There is something else put into it. That ultimately brings up, as we said, this problem that we think of both nature and grace. We have a certain hope that being human is under divine protection, that it is important in a way everything else is not. That's the core of our self-understanding, and here it's on display in a remarkable, rare way. Yeah, our, our conversation has made me more confident about the depth and profundity of the film 
you know, after I watched it last weekend and looked at some scenes again the other night, I, I knew I connected with it and thought it was an interesting, interesting movie, but it's done so just such a different movie in many ways because of it's done mostly through imagery there's no extended dialogue as you said there's lots of voiceovers which come from the letters it's almost like you're looking at a huge painting but you never get to see the whole painting in one shot you sort he brings you and looks at details details of this giant canvas and so you're not you know brought along by traditional plot and character development so i must say after first viewing i didn't i didn't quite you know understand how it asks the questions of it viewers it wants to ask but after we've talked about it i'm more convinced of its beauty and of its effectiveness than i had been before i mean and so i hope our viewers will be pleasantly surprised by its cohe- i guess it's more coherent and thought provoking than it might seem at first Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. I've also enjoyed this conversation very much. It's really the first time I get to sit for so long and talk about this. And it seems like the movie suggests that you should do this. Indeed, you can't think of it like a great painting that you have to linger on and to notice things about. And gradually you get uh, an idea about what is the question that we're dealing with here. Why is this so interesting? Why can't I take my eyes off of it? watching the movie again in preparation i had this experience again certain lingering moments that made me bring up these questions and think about what is the relationship of art and faith what is this asking of us how difficult it is to reveal somebody's soul yeah in normal life we go on with normal ways we all want to avoid going through catastrophes it's not something you can desire you can't say well i would like to know myself better let's risk the end of the world let's see how that turns out it would be madness but nevertheless these things do happen and they are revelatory yeah you could say that the movie works on you works on the viewers in the same way that franz's sacrifices navigates this problem of justice right i mean malik communicates through the beautiful and images rather than through you know a coherent understanding of some logic of the good right it doesn't work on you through argument and a kind of narration of a character development it's rather a, a portrait of certain acts and images and scenes that evoke a response rather than convince you of something right it's pretty miraculous yeah yes i had not sufficiently considered that it's a very good point that you don't quite know when these things sneak up on you and then you begin to see them with increasing clarity and i think that makes them more persuasive just like the filming and the acting show you that you can really believe these were real people as they indeed were but making people so distant from us in such distant circumstances come alive is very difficult but so also what is involved in this what does it mean to care about saving your soul Well, I hope our conversation is a good introduction to this and that people will go see the movie, think about it, talk about it, listen to what we have to say and point out and discover the greatness of Terence Malick and what he has to offer us or what the beautiful has to offer. Sounds great, Titus. This has been one of our one of our most fun conversations, I think. Such a troubling movie has this power to make us think and and become grateful and perhaps somewhat wiser. Yeah, I hope I hope. <laughs> and as always flag you we have to try and find a beautiful movie that's also fun and pleasant and possibly a comedy which we so rarely ever do <laughs> right. we always try. <laughs> Eventually we'll find something. <laughs> Meanwhile, all the best. Thanks for the conversation. Let's do this again. Sounds good, Titus. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>